You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. Today's sermon is the final lesson in our Reimagine series based on Sky Jathani's book with Reimagine Your Relationship with God. Today we'll explore the posture of living for God. Living for God is celebrated throughout Scripture. Faithful men and women of the past and today are worthy of celebration and imitation. Jesus' mission was to save us. His mission for us is to partner with him in bringing the gospel and kingdom to the world. The life for God posture airs when what we do for God supersedes our pursuit of God himself. It is the case of a great thing becoming the ultimate thing. Listen into this sermon where John Landis discusses the challenges of a life for God posture and its impact on his life as a pastor. Visit our website at RoanokeValleyChurch.org or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Church. More resources, sermons, and links to help you be a part of what God is doing in the Roanoke Valley. And now, enjoy today's sermon. All together here up in Roanoke, and uh, we spent last Sunday, Sunday down in Radford, Virginia, uh, with our alumni, and that was a fantastic time together. And uh, thanks for all those who tuned in or who came down. It was uh, a great time. Celebration on uh, what God has been doing since Roanoke's been planted here in 2004. So we're coming up quickly on our 20th anniversary of next time uh, this year, next, this time next year will be 20 years uh, that many of the folks who were on the mission team came this way in 2004. Amen. Uh, we are finishing our series today on Reimagine uh, based on uh, Sky Jathani's book, With, and today will be the last Sunday and then we'll be picking up with a, a sermon series that will finish the year uh, in The Good Shepherd which we began last Sunday down in Radford. So we've got a one-week pause, and then we'll pick back up where we'll, we will be looking at texts throughout the rest of the year on where God is highlighted as the Good Shepherd. And our hope for all of that is what we believe is if we know who God is, then everything else falls into place. If we understand who he is and what, he, what he's for and who he's for and who we are in his sight, everything starts to figure itself out how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to treat each other, what does it look like to be a disciple, how we view the world, how we overcome sin. All that is a byproduct of knowing God. And uh, today's lesson is uh, part, part inspiration, part confession, uh, part reevaluation, part encouragement. There's lots of parts in all of this. Um, but this book, as, uh, as I shared a few months ago, was the book I read uh, for my 40th birthday, where I spent uh, three days in solitude and the golf course. Um, and uh, it was just a great time to reflect, to consider what God has done in uh, 40 years, and also just to consider my walk with him and my relationship to him. And this book was, uh, was recommended by a colleague of mine who is also in the ministry, uh, someone who had lived in a, in a way that their life was uh, for God, meaning it was without a doubt they had sacrificed their lives, they had quit their jobs to go into the full-time ministry, that life was harder because of many of the choices they made to follow Jesus, and that was inspiring to me. Um, but what they shared with me was eye-opening that the, the call to go into the ministry superseded the call to know God. And what I mean by that is a life dedicated for God became his treasure over the true treasure, which is God. So this chapter, which uh, we'll delve in today, today's lesson is just simply the posture of life for God. All of this is meant to uh, give you something to chew on, 
for the Holy Spirit and his word to work and to say, okay, how can, how can I relate to this? How can I approach God in this way? The goal in every single one of these lessons is to live with God. That life comes from being with God. Not living under God, not living over God, not getting life from God, meaning you're just kind of waiting for God to, uh, like, a, you know, like a genie in a bottle, he's meant to help, help, help you in a sense that I'm only here for you to give me good things. That's what we studied two weeks ago. And today, life for God can be summed up in the sense that your life matters based on your ability to achieve things for God. Does that make sense? That life comes from what you can do for God. What you do in your discipleship, what you do in the impact you have in the lives of others, what you do in the impact of your family, coworkers, strangers, you name it. Life comes from your effectiveness to do what God calls you to do. All right? And why that's so challenging to me and why a lot of this is part confession is that I've received the call, not a career, but the call to full-time ministry, where the dedication of all my time and resources is to go and help uh, people know God. And it's easy, it's become very easy over time to go from a life of gratitude, whoa, whoa, what a gift to do this, to my measurement in who I am and the call I've received is that how God sees me is how effective am I in doing the things he's called me to do. And it's not unique, but it's a trap we all can fall into because you have a calling for your job. Your job, as if you are a disciple of Jesus, your job in the lens in which you look at your, your career, your family, isn't for your benefit. It's a sacrifice. You're, you're there to be, to be used by God, and that's a great thing. But that great thing can become the ultimate thing by your value is depicted on how effective you are in whatever you put your mind to. How effective you are as a parent, how effective you are as a, as a co-worker, how effective you are as a colleague, whatever it may be. And in this case, my appeal to us this morning is to look and to pray and to be open to how we may value our effectiveness in our discipleship over how we value God. Okay? So please pray with me. Uh, because this is mostly self-deprecating, and then it's also uh, a, a real challenge from God's word as to who we are meant to be and what God truly desires of us. Amen? So please pray with me. Lord in heaven, God, we come before you. God, this is your church. You lead this church. Your spirit uh, is, is the, the main player in this story. God, help us uh, as, your, as your sons and daughters, God, to value you above all things. God, we take good things and make them the ultimate thing. Good things aren't bad. Uh, you desire us to have great things. You desire us to have life, but we're never meant to draw life from anything but you. God, help our hearts to be soft and our hearts malleable to, the, to your word to the point where we're able to shift and move and repent and change and be inspired uh, by what you truly desire, which is us. God, I pray for your church here that uh, we would be led out of gratitude, that we would be moved and compelled by the love of Christ, that we would be inspired to change by your patience and your kindness. God, that we would measure the right things, so the fruits of the Spirit would become 
uh, our most valuable metrics rather than the things we can achieve or things we do that were never meant to be uh, our responsibility, but yours. God, I pray for your church here, God, to resemble your son more and more, and we know that your spirit desires that and it works to the, towards those ends. Help us, God, to be sensitive to it so we can respond in kind and enjoy communion with you every step of the way. Please uh, give me the words to say that I haven't planned to share and uh, remove the words that I plan to share if that's not what you want anyone to hear. We ask all this in your son's name through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're going to be jumping around text, so if you have a pen or you're really good at uh, chicken pecking on your phone, get ready. I'm going to bring you back to uh, my teenage years. Uh, I am 40 years old, so that was quite a bit of time ago. So um, as you get older, the memories tend to get... Uh, sometimes darker than they really were when I really existed uh, back then. So anyway, uh, I grew up, uh, I, I like to say, with like three silver spoons. Not just one, but like three. Uh, my parents, uh, I didn't have any wants. I know that's unique, um, and I'm privileged, but I recognize that in that I often can find uh, criticisms, and it's a real spoiled, bratty kind of way to remember things. But some of that is just, I need to be honest, but that's how my heart was. Uh, but growing up, I did grow up in church with two fantastic parents that have been married for almost 50 years. Uh, now, not then, but now. And uh, they worked very hard to bring my older sister and my twin brother uh, to, to church, to know about God, to have uh, morality, uh, to recognize God's word as the living, inspired word of God, and to know his son, Jesus. Uh, they wanted a better life for me than, uh, than they had themselves, as any, as any parent does for their children. And I did grow up learning that. I, I also grew up the strong emphasis on God's part, not my part, that God did this. God continues to do great things. He's continued to show his love and faithfulness. And at the end of the day, he's going to do it, not you. That's how I grew up. I was told generally to avoid sin. Uh, to attend church, to be a part of a church body, and uh, that usually just kind of ended up becoming, like, be a good person. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. Um, I found, looking back, there were generally low expectations as to what my life needed to look like outside of Sunday morning and the occasional youth group, meaning there wasn't much instruction or accountability or friendships outside of the Sunday service. This is my experience. It might not be yours. And in that, low expectations definitely were cultivated and bred pretty strongly. Uh, I saw, again, this is my warped teenage mind, bratty teenage mind. This isn't judgment. This is just, this was all. But I saw, in my mind, adults who professed to be, to be, professed to be Christians and used their Sunday worship as a slingshot to get them to next Sunday. Meaning Sunday was what I saw generally the only time they dipped into their relationship with God. And Sunday was to propel them to get done what they wanted to get done until check-in time next Sunday. And I projected that upon many of them, not knowing their stories, because that's exactly what I was doing. And you often pronounce judgment on others. You see what takes one to know one kind of thing, right? So that was generally me um, throughout the week paying very little attention to what God was up to and what he was calling me to during the week. Christianity, for me, looked very top-heavy, meaning you were either a priest, 
a pastor, a missionary, a martyr, and in some cases, a very overeager Sunday school teacher or an annoying choir director. Those were your options. Like if you really wanted to be serious about God, you were the annoying choir director, you were the overeager Sunday school teacher, you were the priest himself or herself, the pastor, or you went out on a mission team. Everybody else was just kind of there slingshotting from Sunday to Sunday. And I knew as a, uh, as a bratty 13, 14, 15 year old that there's no way I wanted to be a pastor. There's no way I was gonna be a priest. Too scary to be a missionary. Martyr, definitely didn't want to do that. And I was super irritated with my Sunday school teacher, God bless her. And the choir director checked all the stereotypes of church lady in Saturday Night Live. To me, churchgoers were one of two things, <clears throat> lazy or crazy. That was it for me. Again, not true, just ratty, warped John. Each Sunday, to me, every single one of those presentations of those people living for God looked lame, risky, distant, or downright sad. Like, jeez, is this it? I don't want to end up like that. So I saw the general Christian kind of going about their lives, doing that slingshot from Sunday to Sunday, and to what appeared, receiving all the goodness and blessings of uh, a life in Christ. Good family, good relationships, great job, uh, driving the minivans or station wagons back in the day, uh, station wagons with the roll-down back window with the back-facing seats was the, uh, the goal of every suburban dad in Virginia Beach, and my dad achieved that goal, and I was proud of my dad. Christianity, for me, could be summed up as simply being a consumer, a consumer Christian. Christianity, over time, in my eyes, looked fat and lazy. You didn't do anything. You just got it. You were a taker, a taker, a taker, and not a giver. Fast forward to the ripe old age of 19. I was in college. I became unhappy with my life, became unhappy with my lack of purpose. I thought, in my mind, I had grown old enough to see through the emptiness of Sunday to Sunday Christianity. I saw a lack of bite in Christianity, energy, and definitely takes one to know one, authenticity. Nobody was honest to my mind, no one was real. No one ever thought about confessing their deepest, darkest secrets because I wasn't either. I'm not telling if you don't tell, was the way I lived my life. And then I was met by a member of our fellowship in, in, at Old Dominion University back in 2003. And in my mind, it wasn't, it wasn't the first time, but in my mind, that was the first time I met someone that was truly striving to put the scriptures into practice. Now, that's not true, but that's what I perceived. And they were, and they were intense. They were serious. They were bold. They were courageous. They were sharing their faith with strangers. I was like, whoa, I've never seen this type of living for God. And it was inspiring. And I thought, whoa, okay. And then I studied the Bible, and I looked at passages like Luke 23, which became foundational in my understanding of what it meant to become uh, and meant to be a Christian, to become a Christian, that you carry your cross daily, deny yourself, no longer live for yourself, but for him. Those type of foundational truths. And I saw that being lived out. Mark 1, where the soon-to-be apostles were called to become fishers of men rather than stinky fishers, fishermen, that they were given a true purpose and identity 
that was meaningful. And what I recognized in myself is that God is giving me a new purpose. That my life before was purposeless or an attempt at purposes that weren't really going to make much, make a dent in eternity, if you will. So the idea of becoming a Christian, being a disciple, being a Christ follower, really, really going for it, not just in word, but in deed, was exciting. That I actually had purpose. And it was something I was proud of and excited and very blessed and very appreciative of the grace that God showed me to bring me out of the life of darkness and bring me into the kingdom he loves. Over time, those things became foundational to the, to the degree that how well I did those things was how I valued myself. All right? So the call to be a disciple can never be watered down. That anyone who follows Christ is meant to be a fisher of men. You are called to an eternal purpose. This is not a happy, clappy, yay, just, just know some cool things and feel good about it. No, your life is meant to be different. You are meant to imitate Christ. You are meant to be sensitive to his spirit. It bears fruit that is unmistakable. So this is not a watering down. But over time, for me, the learning, the walking, the teaching, and studying with my friends became a passion to the point where, in my mind, I, I made a decision to change my major with 15 credits to go from civil engineering to history education. Couldn't go from two farther ends of the spectrum so that I could have my summers off to train into the ministry. I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. You tell me that I can use all my time and energy to sit down with people and share the gospel. Is there anything better that, that you could do? And in my mind, there was nothing better. So it was worth an extra year in school. It was worth much consternation and disagreement with my loving dad who's forking the bill. Told you, three spoons, that might be four. And I did it. And I went into the ministry in 2009 after teaching in high school uh, for a couple years. And the call to be a guy and be a disciple and be a follower of Jesus that is on the mission, the Matthew 28 mission of going and making disciples, was foundational for me. Luke 10 was inspiring for me, where the disciples were sent out two by two and were sent to go out and and spread the gospel, and if they find someone of peace, meaning they're open to the message to stay there as long as you can, but if, you're, if they're not people of peace, then shake your feet off, or shake the dust off your feet, and move on. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, not people who are apostles or evangelists or in the, in the paid ministry, per se, but just people who followed Christ that were persecuted, thrown out of Jerusalem. Acts 8, verse 1, they spoke the word of God everywhere they went. The call to be a person who shares the gospel was evident in the scriptures. People living for God all over the place. There was nothing more important to me than finding ways to be useful to the master. All I wanted to hear and all I still want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. For me, over time, my gratitude for my new life was overshadowed by my call to be an evangelist, to be someone who makes an impact 
with this new life I've been given. The good thing, the great thing, the inspiring thing, the earth-shattering thing of being a man who's been called out of darkness and into light to now imitate Christ, follow his spirit, help people become Christians, be all, be all in, sold out for God, now became the greatest thing in my life over God himself. Discipleship to Jesus and devotion to God was primarily missional. If you were, as, and Sky talks about this in his book, which really shed light on my heart, if you were to crack an, open, an apple open for someone who was like me, the core of it would be the mission of God. Everyone was a part of the mission. You were either on the mission, you were getting in the way of me being on the mission, you were the mission itself, meaning you, you were lost and you needed to be saved, or you're a disciple who I'm in the body of Christ with who should be on the mission but's fat and lazy, who is buying into consumer Christianity where you are a taker instead of a giver, and you need to get back on the mission because that's what grateful people do. And if you're not on the mission, you're not grateful. So I hang out with people that are on the mission. I elevate people who are on the mission. The most important characteristic to me were people that were outward focused, studying the Bible with their peers, courageously sharing their faith, burning the candle at both ends to do well in academia and still make impact. The metrics for me, over time, for a person who is devoted to God, could be summarized by the following. How many people did you reach out to? How courageous were you really in your conversations? In your Bible studies, did you ask the right questions to really get to the heart? Were you there helping them progr show progress? If they stopped studying, why was that? Was there something you can do differently? What can you learn from that? Not bad. Again, just became the ultimate thing. And have I helped someone become a Christian this semester, this month, this year? And if I hadn't been personally fruitful, meaning I didn't help someone become a Christian, I felt inevitably deficient in my ability to be a Christ follower. I felt like there's something wrong with me, and there's something I need to change to be more impactful or effective. Fast forward to the ministry. If the church wasn't growing, it's my fault. If the church is shrinking, shrinking, it's really your fault. And there would be Sunday after Sunday where as soon as I'm done here, I am riddled with anxiety because I put too much emphasis on how well I do versus how well people know God. A lot of this language has me in it. How effective am I? What did I do? What did I say? What did I not say? All that emphasis when it's really God and his spirit is the major player in all of this. In my mind as a young Christian, the posture of doing things for God were reinforced by the celebration of those who were really devoted to that type of life. 
those who went on mission teams, those who planted churches, as I said earlier, those who quit their jobs and entered the full-time ministry, those who's, the students who, you know what, maybe sacrificed an A to really stay up all night to study the Bible with a friend. You know, eternal treasure. There were times the campus minister where I spent most of my time with students who were consumed with going into the full-time ministry, that we created a dichotomy in our own campus ministry, that you were either full-time ministry or you were secular. And the people that got attention from me as a pastor were the people that wanted to be trained in the full-time ministry. Without a doubt, leaving people who were not interested in going into full-time ministry to feel secondhand, to feel somewhat deficient in their zeal for God, that God forbid they wanted to go into the workforce and they make an impact, that somehow that was secondary in a commitment level to Jesus. That the goal, if you're really fired up, was to go to the extent of being in the full-time ministry. And we celebrated people that went into the full-time ministry. But we don't celebrate always, or I didn't. I, I didn't celebrate the folks that go to work every day, spending time with the same people every day, looking for opportunities, following the Holy Spirit, coming home from work, coming to midweek without eating, jumping in Bible studies that I set up at 8.30 because that's when you're home, so you're working all day. This is just where my heart goes. And what I've missed is that even though maybe a celebration, these things are worthy of celebration, that those who are on mission teams, those who are sharing their faith, those who do, you know what, go into the full-time ministry. It is a sacrifice. Those who are doing those things, it's, it's worthy of celebration. But what can often be caught is that's the goal. Where what's the root in all those who live with God is that they have a heart for him. They have a relationship with him. They are walking with him. They spend time with him. It's behind the scenes that often doesn't get elevated, but it's the outward things that tend to. And I think culturally, I reinforce that here in Roanoke, where the, the outward displays of faith can become the greatest thing. And we undermine unintentionally the times where you devote in your prayer closets, in your prayer, your prayer walks, and your times in God's word, and your study, and the conversations, and the text messages, and the phone calls, and the visits, all those things, they're not meant to be up here. So they're not going to get elevated because you don't want them to. Know what your right hand, what your left, what your right hand, know what your left hand is doing. So we kind of choose what we celebrate. And the unintended consequences of that is that we can create a culture of people who want to do things for God so that they can feel valued too. It's human nature. You see someone celebrate on the TV, you find out what they do, you want to feel valuable. So that profession looks a bit more appealing now because it's getting attention. You saw a parent do this with their kid, and it helped their kid love, love their parent more. That feels good to be loved by your kids. I'm going to do that. Not bad, but when we find our value in what we do and how we're doing it, we're actually robbing ourselves of what's meant to anchor, inspire, encourage, 
fill us and remind us of who we are. So is it wrong to be fully devoted to God? Is it, be, is it wrong to live for God? Is it wrong for your lives to, to actually have fruit of someone who lives for God? There are plenty of scripture that celebrates a life lived in the service to God, which complicated things for me. You look at Paul himself, calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was actually a prisoner at times, but in the times where he wasn't, he still called himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ in the following three books, Romans 1, Philippians 1, and Colossians 4, a servant of Christ. None of us would argue that Paul's life was dominated by the mission to live for God. No doubt. Jesus himself in Luke 19, verse 10, told the people there who were looking for him, and where, where have you been? He says, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. So what's Jesus' main goal? Why was he here? To seek and save the lost. So if you want to be like Jesus, what should be your main focus? Seek and save the lost. But how did Jesus develop a heart to want to do those things? Duty? Guilt? That that's where his value is? Jesus did those things. Paul did those things. But Paul never got it twisted. At least what we see. He never made his calling his treasure. His treasure remained God. Paul didn't make that mistake. And the temptation for me to put the mission of God and the impact that God's mission has in this world in the place of God is still very real. But God should only occupy, or what God is the only place that should occupy that space. Paul recognized that communion with Christ preceded his work for him. Go no further than Philippians 3. This, this passage keeps coming up in every single one of these postures. Everything he has, all of his background, all of his accomplishments, all of his achievements, all of his righteousness, all of his knowledge of God's word, all the transformation he had is trash in comparison to what? Knowing Christ my Lord. And I think to me, honestly, the ability to sit down and commune with God, to open up his word and to know that he is there with me, to have his spirit inside of me, was secondary to the impact of the work I was doing for him. You could tell me, God loves you, and I would say, that's awesome. But then you could say, look, this person wants to study the Bible, and you were a participant in that. That gave me more joy, more excitement, and more value than who God was and what he said I am. What I did for God gave me more sense of comfort, encouragement, than who he said I am. Can anyone relate? So my brothers and sisters, over the years of being a disciple, it's been 20 years now, I had plenty of conversations with brothers and sisters who fell into the same trap, who had been going to work, who had been praying, who had been serving, who had been hospitable, but they hadn't helped anyone become a Christian. And they felt, you know what? I just don't feel right. Something's off. I haven't 
been personally fruitful this year. And it's like, well, that's not something you can control. But we believe we can. I'm not being light enough. I didn't say this. I didn't say that. Okay, we can grow and change, but let's not get it twisted. God's the main player in all of this. Brothers would confess to me, you know what? feels off, man. I'm just not doing it. Well, what do you mean you're not doing it? I haven't been in a Bible study in like two months. Okay. Get in a Bible study, but why is that so important to you? Because I don't feel like I'm really living for God unless I'm in Bible studies. Okay. That's not where your value is. Get in a Bible study. It's encouraging. It's awesome. Bible's great. Help someone become a Christian, but that's not where your value is. But we often find good things become the ultimate things. And I've reinforced that as a minister. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 21 talks about the heart and the outcome. And in my heart, I can put the outcome as greater than the motivator. I can get focused on results and impact rather than just communion with God. Paul didn't get it twisted. 2 Corinthians 5 says, The Christ love compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and raised again. And it's because of that that he no longer saw anyone from a worldly point of view, but a godly point of view. He had compassion because of Christ's love that turned into a life willing to be a man of reconciliation, where he can implore people to get right with God. But the heart was there. God's love moved me to see the world this way. What can be elevated is people who are seeing the world that way and live that way, and we think we can just skip to that without the heart. And the heart doesn't always get emphasized, but the action gets celebrated. And I took shortcuts all along the way, and so can you. Compassion is the call, not evangelism. If you're compassionate, you'll open your mouth. If you're compassionate, you'll spend time with people. If you're compassionate, you'll be a great listener. If you're compassionate, you'll be hospitable. If you're compassionate, you'll, be you'll have the ability to be interrupted. But the call is go and evangelize. I skip the compassion. There's a sister in our fellowship, I love her to death, and we've kind of waxed poetic about this, but between her and me, we could outshare our faith of everybody in this room. And it's not just because I have the time. I'll crush you. And I used to flex on that. I used to get value from that. I share my faith with 200 campus students today. I used to say that to inspire the other campus students to do the same. But what I should have been talking about is compassion. What I should have been elevating is grace. The horse, not the cart. But over time, we catch the output. We catch the, the life, but we don't catch the behind the scenes. And I think why our hearts are so stirred when we read Jesus going out often early to spend time with God, why that makes us all go, hmm. Because we know that's 
that's the right thing to celebrate. We're not intimidated reading that Jesus spent lonely, quiet hours with God. That inspires us. We can get intimidated that he was out there going for it and flipping tables. And we're like, ooh, ooh, I need to do that. No, maybe, but not without the time. Not without the quiet time and lonely places. Not without the discovering of who God is and what he says about you. There's no shortcuts. And I taught this in the ministry, but I didn't practice it. I taught, you know, your private life leads to your public life. But boy, did we celebrate public life over private life. And I can't implore you and us as a family more to enjoy, to capture, to carve out, to celebrate the private life with God. To know that when you're there reading, praying, murmuring, whatever it means, whatever you're doing there, you can't express the words in prayer, but the Spirit discerns, as Roman tells us, that those moments God is there that's my boy. That's my girl. As we studied last Sunday, the shepherd's mercy and goodness follows us and leads us. That is worth celebrating. And those things, as it washes over us, as it becomes our truth and greatest treasure, then, yeah, the fruit comes. So let's celebrate the right things. Let's celebrate the posture that God always intended from the beginning, was not over, under, for, or from, but with. Consider this as we bring, it, bring this to a close. I do ask you to answer the question this week, are you valuable? What makes you valuable? Ask others, why am I valuable? Ask them. Why do you think you're valuable? I guarantee over 50% of people will answer that question and they'll start talking about what they do. Why are you valuable? Well, I do this and I do this and I study this and I got this and so and so. Okay, that is valuable, but it's not the true value of who you are. And that's the gospel that we get to spread because your family, your friends, your neighbors are all chasing for a value that will leave them shortchanged. There is beauty in the gospel. There is beauty in the mission. There is beauty in moments that we read in John chapter 4 where the woman at the well feels loved, seen, exposed, boundaries are broken down by the Christ, and she runs off to a town where she's been filled with embarrassment for who knows how long, willing to tell them everything she's ever done and to come meet the man who told her all of that? Does value increase for her by going into that situation and being bold? No. Her value might decrease by going and doing those things. But why did she do it? She was heard. She was seen. She was valued. She was lovingly exposed. And she was given truth about who she was in the eyes of who mattered most. And that's what we need to remember. That's what I forgot. That's what I've forgotten, and that's what I want to hang on to. And I want to spread that and share that with you. Are you valuable? What makes you valuable? There is inherent value in your work. There is sanctity in your work. There is original intent in the garden to work with God. They were on a mission from the beginning. 
but it wasn't the value. I end it here in Luke chapter 15. Our culture is obsessed with impact. Luke 15 destroys this. The younger son we know took his father's inheritance, ran off, and blew it. And then what does he say as he comes to a moment of kind of pseudo-repentance? My father's servants live better than me, or better than this. I will go home and be his servant. So okay, I'm not worthy to be his son. I've lost the value. I'm going to go and just be his servant. That's son number, younger son. Older son, how does he view the scenario? We know he's lost too. He thinks his value is what God gives him, or his father, what his father's going to give him, the inheritance itself. And how does he view his time with his father? I've been slaving for you all these years. I was waiting for this, and I did this because I wanted your stuff. I'm slave. He also saw himself primarily, his value, by what he did, how long he persevered so he could get from God. Notice what the father says to both of these boys. Does his father, to the younger son, affirm the reality that he's now going to be a servant? You're right. You blew it. Now you're here just going to be like one of the hired men. You are going to live with me as a servant. No. He runs up, embarrasses himself, hugs him to the, the ghast of all of his guests, gives him the ring, gives him the robe, gives him the fattened calf. Today my son has returned. What was the father consumed with? Being with his son again. Not having his son do things for him, but being with his son again. To the older son, who's like me, spoiled, rotten, jerk face, totally twisted. What does the father tell his son? Come with me. Come to the party. Everything I have is yours. Come and be with me. What's the goal of the father? To be with his kids. What's the value? Inherently, they're his. And he's not going to let them think they're less than that. No matter what they've done, you're not coming back just to serve. Yes, you're saved to serve, but that's not your value. You're my son. You're my daughter. That's what leads you. So what do we celebrate? We celebrate that we are valuable to our God. Not because of what you've gotten done or how great you are or how courageous you were last week or how many people you study the Bible with or whatever your purpose is, whatever your calling is, to be a great mom, to be a great dad, to be a, a business owner, to be working at the VA, to be a nurse, to be a whatever medical field, electrician, you name it. That's your calling. That's not your value. We are called to be disciples of Jesus. We are called to be men and women who are courageous and bold and loving and sacrificial and deny ourselves and live for what's to come, not for what's here and now. But the heart of all that is to know that the number one desire is for God to be with us, with you. And it's ironic at the end of the Great Commission, he says, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. 
And in my heart, we elevate, go and make disciples. And yeah, he's going to be with you, but he's only with you so that you do those things. So whenever you're nervous or scared, just know he's with you so that you can do stuff. And yes, knowing that God is with you will help you be courageous. But he's not with you so you can do stuff for him. He didn't give you a spirit so you can just go operate with him. He wants to be with you. So let's do things for God. But not so that we get value from it. Not so that we can celebrate and feel like, oh yeah, we are impactful and productive and effective disciples. I'd make a case for the multiple years of my life, I've been very ineffective. I've lacked impact. You know why? Because I value the wrong things. We've seen 20 plus people become Christians in one semester. But was my heart more like Christ? Maybe not. We've had years of growth, but was the body of Christ knowing God more? That's what matters. Not all growth is good growth. Tell that to the mole you hate. Not all growth is good growth. Practices for us this week. Ask yourself with God, why am I valuable? Be honest. Capture what comes to your mind. Ask someone else why they believe they're valuable. And then celebrate the quiet moments with your God this week. Whether it's full of praise or songs or full of just being gut level honest about stuff you don't like that's happening. Or just sitting confused with your God. Celebrate being with God this week. There are many postures that we take, and they will change, and they'll come, and they'll go. But I pray that we can be anchored by a God who looks at all we do and says the most valuable thing is you. And I want you to know that. And I did it so much that I sent my one and only son to die for you. So why? I can be with you. And we know that, so we go. We know that, so we love. We know that, so we share. We know that, so we do things for God. But we don't live for God. We live with God. Amen. Let's stand for a final song. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. Be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here. Subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.